Welcome everyone. This is Charlie Du, and you're listening to the World Salon Podcast, where we bring you in-depth conversations on the most pressing issues facing our global community. I'm honored to have with me today, Jeffrey Sachs, world-renowned economic professor, best-selling author, innovative educator, and global leader in sustainable development. He serves as a university professor at Columbia University and director of the Center for Sustainable Development. In this episode, we'll be diving into several complex dimensions of the current global economic landscape. We'll begin by examining the multifaceted challenges of inflation, financial stability risk, the cost of living crisis, and the need for a cooperative solution to issues like climate change. Then we'll analyze the shifting dynamics of global governance, the complex relationship between China and the G7 nations, and the sustainability of China's development model. With his decades of experience advising international governments and organizations, Professor Sachs brings invaluable perspective to these pressing economic issues. I look forward to a thought-provoking discussion. So our first topic is on uncertainty, inflation, and the climate on a global scale. Um, the IMF World Outlook Report published every year details a few major threats plaguing the world's economies. In particular, this year, um, one of the major ones was global growth slowdown. Now, the IMF reports a drop in global growth rates from 6% in 2021 to 3.2% in 2022 and 2.7% in this year, attributing it to a large range of factors like high inflation and geopolitical tension. Now, can you elaborate on the most pressing aspects? Um, you know, what are the most pressing threats causing the slowdown? Are there any particular policies, events that come to mind? We're in a world of uh, high uncertainty on many counts. Of course, uh, the COVID pandemic was a, a huge shock to the global system, the biggest public health crisis uh, of this kind in at least a century. So it's really done a big job of uh, disrupting the world economy. There were major actions taken in response to COVID uh, in the rich countries with big expansions of the money supply and budget deficits, and that fed into inflation in 2022 and 2023. And that meant that the central banks took measures to counteract the inflation in 2022 and 2023, raising interest rates and creating yet more uncertainty of financial stress and uh, a potential downturn. Then add uh, the uh, war in Ukraine, which escalated dramatically in February 24th, 2022. The war had been going on <coughs> since 2014, in fact, but when uh, Russia launched its special military operation on February 24th, 2022, and the U.S. reacted uh, with uh, uh, deep sanctions uh, and uh, high uncertainties resulted, and of course the destruction from the war itself and the disruption of trade from the Black Sea region, all of this further created a mess and big uncertainties of food prices, fertilizer prices, uh, uh, oil prices, uh, and we're not past that. Then add the geopolitical uh, tensions between the U.S. and China. These are tensions uh, that uh, are caused by the U.S., uh, starting back with the Trump administration, which took unilateral measures of protectionism against Chinese products. These measures, in my view, were completely uh, in violation of international 
trade rules, but the United States didn't care. It just went right ahead and did them. And the reason that the U.S. has acted this way is, in my opinion, that uh, U.S. policymakers have gotten it into their head that they should try to slow or stop Chinese economic success. And so a direct reason for China's slower growth this year, which is part of the global growth picture, is the U.S. is trying to slow China's growth this year by impeding exports. One of the dramatic things that we see happening right now is that China's exports to the U.S. measured on a noisy monthly basis, so looking at June 2023 compared to June 2022, for example, is down more than 20 percent, uh, by one measure around 30 percent. This is dramatic for China. My view is the U.S. is really misbehaving badly. I know that Chinese government's very frustrated. I know the U.S. government is very frustrated when I say that the U.S. government is uh, behaving uh, badly. But I'll say it again, uh, which is that it is irresponsible of the United States to try to hinder China's economic development. It is uh, harmful to the whole world to impede trade in the protectionist manner that the United States is doing. And it is, of course, uh, adding to this high global uncertainty. So this is the situation today, very noisy, multiple shocks, the pandemic, the Ukraine war, the U.S.-China tensions, uh, the big swings of monetary and fiscal policy. Um, we're still standing, but we're not cooperating very well. And uh, yet one more problem is uh, that the U.S. and China don't talk properly to each other. Again, in my view, because the United States is rude first and foremost, which is that if you want to talk to a counterpart, at least be polite. Uh, and the United States doesn't understand that. It likes to bully, it likes to make demands, it likes to throw insults. Uh, this is all uh, improper behavior, in my opinion, but it actually adds to the macroeconomic turmoil as well. I think that's very insightful, and you brought up a few points from the COVID-19 pandemic, which led to you know, high inflation, to the Ukraine war, to the U.S.-China conflicts. Now, one thing that you mentioned in particular was the inflation. Now, given the IMF's report and the warning about risk of monetary policy miscalibration in major countries, how should central banks like the ECB and the Fed balance, you know, this curbing of inflation by raising rates and the potential recession that that could cause? When uh, you have increased the money supply massively, as the Fed did in 2020 and 2021, uh, your choices uh, of what to do after that are not very good. So by 2021, uh, the money supply increase first fed its way into asset prices. So the first thing that was reflected uh, in the extreme liquidity increase was stock market prices jumped, even though we were in a uh, COVID uh, contraction. Uh, NFT prices jumped, Bitcoin prices jumped, every price of everything jumped. Uh, that's what happens when you turn on the monetary taps. By 2022, these uh, increases were showing up in commodities prices. 
uh, especially then with the uh, Ukraine war also starting and the other disruptions of the supply chains. But this is basically a monetary phenomenon. By 2023, the Fed was tightening. It was raising interest rates significantly, trying to reverse part of the earlier monetary expansion. And so far, it has done so without throwing the U.S. into a contraction, <coughs> into an outright recession. If it accomplishes that, I'll be pretty impressed, frankly. Uh, our tools in macroeconomics are not so precise uh, that uh, one can just turn the dials uh, and uh, make a soft landing. Whether the Fed uh, accomplishes a soft landing or not uh, still remains to be seen. The Fed doesn't have much choice but to reverse some of the monetary expansion of 2020 and 2021 because there was a lot of it. Uh, the high-powered money or base money that is the reserves created by the Fed uh, rose uh, by about $3 trillion in a very short period of time on a base of around $5 trillion. So it was a very significant increase of the uh, base money or high-powered money uh, supply of the United States. So the Fed has to reverse this or else <coughs> the inflation will continue to be very high. Uh, but the Fed is trying to thread a needle, uh, which is uh, to not uh, divert in being too soft and thereby uh, having this high inflation continue and not being too abrupt and thereby throwing a $25 trillion economy into outright recession with spin-on consequences uh, around the world. And so far, <laughs> it's accomplished that. As I say, I wouldn't bet that it can land this plane uh, softly, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, I think the Fed's done a, has been walking a very fine line between you know trying to drive down inflation versus not leading to a recession, um, and I think they've been doing a, a fairly decent job. You know, um, I think Powell's doing doing pretty well there. Remember, by the way, that uh, one can say that the Fed is acting rather accurately right now, but I think at least in retrospect, the Fed was over-expansionary in 2020, which is what gives us the current headaches. Mm. Uh, if we go back to 2008, 2009 as another example, a lot of people said uh, in 2009, well, the Fed is doing a good job to prevent the deep contraction from getting worse, and that was true, but the Fed had also created uh, the deep contraction in part through the uh, absolutely misguided policy of the U.S. at the time to intentionally bankrupt Lehman Brothers, which created a financial mm. panic. So I, I don't want to give the Fed uh, too little credit for its fine-tuning, but I certainly don't want to give the Fed too much credit because it created a big monetary uh, overhang, actually, uh, in 2020. It overdid it. I see. So it's created a mess that it's now trying to clean up. That's and, correct. And it's doing an okay job at That's that. exactly yes. right. What about fiscal policy-wise? Do you think there's anything that the government could do fiscally that would help the economy not go into a recession? Um, any major policies you see that, that could help there? Fiscal policy, first and foremost, should be about what we want from government. Mm -hmm. And it should take a long view. 
and it should ask what is important for the government to provide in services, uh, what is important for the government to spend on, and how is it going to pay for it. Having said that, this is nothing like actual fiscal policy. <laughs> fiscal policy is uh, very much a year at a time, a crisis at a time, especially with the fights over the debt ceiling uh, every few months as we're going to have once again in the United States. And the basic politics of fiscal policy is that vested interests want more spending and other vested interests, very powerful ones, want tax cuts. So we run chronic de budget deficits that are rather significant. And um, <coughs> the U.S. public debt and I should be precise, the part of the public debt that is not owned by the Federal Reserve, but actually owned by the public, so what's called the publicly owned uh, Treasury debt, uh, was about 35% of GDP in the year 2000. Now it's 98% of GDP. Mm. So the debt has soared. Why did it soar? Well, we fought an absolutely insane war in Iraq didn't pay for it with taxes. We fought uh, more crazy wars in Syria and Libya, didn't pay for it with taxes. Uh, we now put money to Ukraine, uh, badly spent killing a lot of people. Don't, we don't pay for it with taxes. Uh, we had a pandemic, of course, uh, we spent trillions of dollars on that, didn't pay for it with taxes. Uh, the fact of the matter is that Several times during the period from 2000 till today, the Congress voted tax cuts. They like mm -hmm. to do that because when they give a tax cut, uh, they get more campaign contributions from mm -hmm. their big wealthy donors. So our fiscal policy is ad hoc. It doesn't spend on what it should spend. It spends much too much on war. It doesn't tax uh, enough. And so in that context, I regard the structural uh, imbalances of fiscal policy as being the first order of concern. Of course, macroeconomists view fiscal policy in a different way. How is it going to interact with the uh, business cycle, with the, the budget cycle? That's a valid consideration, mm -hmm. but it should be a secondary consideration. The primary consideration is that the budget is about what government does in providing goods, services, investment, and transfer payments. And there should be good reasons for what it does, and there should be a way to pay for what it does on average, not necessarily quarter by quarter or year by year, because budget mm -hmm. deficits can be stabilizing in certain contexts. But I want to see a longer-term view and a structural view that we have a government that does what it's supposed to do and stops doing what it shouldn't be doing. The main thing it should stop is spending so much money on the military and on wars. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought devastation on global economic development, with escalating conflicts, shifting monetary policy, and tensions over trade and investment restrictions between the United States and China all contributing to global uncertainty. The resulting inflation is a sign of macroeconomic turbulence. Now, although central banks, in particular the Federal Reserve, 
have shifted from accommodative to tight monetary policy and prevented the collapse of their economies. As pointed out by Professor Sachs, many central banks' policies, in particular the Federal Reserve's monetary policy during COVID, was ill-advised, and its current policy, while effective, is attempting to mitigate the negative effects of its earlier actions. Speaking of spending on militaries and on wars, um, I think another point that you mentioned earlier was the trade and geopolitical tensions, particularly between Ukraine and Russia and China and the U.S. Um, how do you see these factors contributing to the global slowdown? Um, what are some very specific instances in which you think the U.S. is overstepping or that you think there could be a lot of policy updates? The war in Ukraine and the tensions with China are actually part of the same basic uh, U.S. foreign policy and U.S. viewpoint. I say that because the basic idea of U.S. foreign policy is to make the United States be and remain the most powerful country in the world without challengers. This, to my mind, is a kind of crazy idea because uh, if uh, a country says we we need to be the most powerful in the world you think they're a little bit uh, megalomaniac mm -hmm. uh, and very unrealistic especially when the country is only four percent of the world population mm -hmm. uh, roughly one-fourth of China's population roughly one-fourth of India's population roughly one-fourth of Africa's population so where does the US get this idea it's a kind of uh, arrogant idea which has been around for a while, but U.S. foreign policy is based on that. And these uh, foreign policy strategists for a while have said, well, we really only have two real threats. Uh, one is Russia and one is China. And uh, Russia, eh, it's not really a threat, it's kind of a sideshow. Uh, and uh, China, that's a big threat they decided sometime around 10 years ago. And because of this, U.S. foreign policy has aimed uh, to take on Russia and China. The way the U.S. wanted to take on Russia was by expanding NATO, which is a U.S. military alliance. And mm -hmm. the U.S. idea was to surround Russia in the Black Sea region by incorporating Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. But the Russians had a different idea, which is we don't want to be surrounded by the United States. And when Russia repeatedly demanded that the U.S. stop the NATO enlargement, the U.S. Mm -hmm. kept saying, it's none of your business. We don't have to talk to you. We do what we want and what Ukraine wants or what Georgia wants. <coughs> Russia said, I don't think so. Uh, this affects us. This is our border. Uh, you can't move your military, your missiles. Uh, your intelligence gathering uh, right up to uh, our 2,300-kilometer border with Ukraine. So a war broke out, but it's basically a war, in my view, over NATO enlargement because the U.S. government is kind of deaf when Russia says, don't do that. The U.S. says, what? Don't do that. Uh, we don't hear anything. Don't do that. And then finally war came. Mm. Now when you look at China, it's the same basic approach, mm. which is that now we have a competitor, uh, we have to somehow confront the competitor. And this attitude really took off 
around 2014 when mm. two things uh, happened in China. Uh, one was uh, that the Chinese government announced a major technology program called Made in China 2025. And this really freaked out uh, American strategists because China announced, well, we're going to be in the forefront of 10 key global technologies. I said, that's pretty cool. Invest in those. We're going to get a lot of benefits. And mm -hmm. the U.S. should invest in those. We could have a race to the top of who gets uh, where first. But the U.S. really freaked out on this. And second, China uh, launched the Belt and Road Initiative. And the Belt and Road Initiative is the idea of China using its huge saving pool and its huge export capacity to help build infrastructure in partner countries, starting with uh, Southeast Asia and Central Asia, so that more and more countries have modern infrastructure, use Chinese uh, goods and services, connect with China, and ideally build uh, global trade relations. So to my mind, wonderful. I was there at the launch of the Belt and Road Initiative, and I thought it was a, a terrific idea then, and I still think it's a terrific idea. Again, this freaked out the United States. Oh my God, who do they think they are? We're the only ones that can have diplomacy, international relations, financial relations. And now China is uh, coming uh, to uh, uh, make nice with uh, our uh, partner countries rather than the United States uh, uh, perhaps uh, joining uh, the competition with the race to the top, the U.S. Mm -hmm. bad-mouthed the Belt and Road Initiative and decided uh, we have to warn countries and threaten countries, don't be part of that. Uh, and also the U.S. Uh, started to take the view we really need to slow China's growth because it's too dangerous. This is a horrible idea. Uh, it is no one country's business to slow or hinder the development of another country, period. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, very dangerous, very damaging, uh, a negative sum approach to the world. But I interpret the U.S. actions this way. The U.S. government, of course, denies this. They say, no, 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 we're just acting for our national security. We're not trying to hurt anybody. But I watch what they do, and um, I'm pretty sure I'm right, that they're actively taking steps to hinder China. Now, whether it works or not is quite another matter. Mm -hmm. uh, in the short term, it's definitely causing some pain because China has uh, used uh, its export competitiveness to promote overall development for mm -hmm. many decades, in fact. And the large U.S. market was... Uh, definitely one of the places where Chinese companies were coming, making money, providing mm. good products, uh, selling at uh, low prices because of uh, the efficiencies in China and uh, what were relatively lower wages. Uh, now that market is closed to China. So China has to find some other ways to continue to, to grow. The other thing the U.S. is trying to do, of course, is to stop the technology advance. And the U.S. thought it had the absolute uh, ace in the hole, as it were, with the microprocessors uh, because uh, it was the U.S. microchip ecosystem 
that developed the very advanced uh, semiconductors, and those became more and more important, for example, with artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So NVIDIA, uh, with its A100 chip, became the, the center of our world right now because large language models are uh, being uh, built on NVIDIA chips. Uh, and the United States said, okay, now we have China by the neck. All we have to do is stop all the exports of advanced semiconductors, stop ASML in the Netherlands from exporting its uh, uh, advanced lithography equipment, uh, and we can starve China of uh, uh, its capacity to compete. And the U.S. also targeted Chinese tech companies like ZTE and <coughs> Huawei uh, and uh, thought it would kill them that way. But now we have uh, the new Huawei phone launched uh, just mm. this week, um, and the claim is that it has inside Chinese-built 7 nanometer uh, chips that are competitive with the A100s. This remains still to be tested and verified by people who are much more expert in this than I am. But mm. I do have to say, as an economist with some uh, experience of watching this for a long time, I never thought that there was really a choke point that the U.S. would have. Uh, and I always thought that if the U.S. Uh, blocked uh, China from getting advanced semiconductor uh, chips, uh, China would find a way to invent them. Mm. Uh, and it seems to me that that's what's happening. Hmm. I find that very insightful, and I particularly like your, your analogy about how the U.S. is only 4% of the population, and it tries to control 90, 90, the rest of the 96. Yeah. So when it comes to China in particular, I think there's a very interesting dynamic currently going on. The U.S. is sending all these high-level officials from Blinken to Yellen to now Commerce Secretary Raimondo, on the one hand claiming that the U.S. doesn't want to limit China's economic growth um, and it wants to cooperate, but on the other hand, during Raimondo's visit, um, uh, Biden enacted a new restriction on investing in China's technology companies. How do you see this dynamic playing out? <laughs> which, which side do you see as the U.S.'s true intention? I think the U.S. true intention is uh, pretty aggressive, first of all. And second, I propose to uh, <coughs> friends in the administration, if they're really serious about dialogue, the first thing they should say to China is, look, uh, we we're going to compete with you and whatever, but we're not going to introduce new unilateral measures, at least before we discuss them with you. So how rude is it to send all these uh, cabinet officials and still proceed unilaterally uh, with the restrictions on trade, on finance, uh, on technology? If you're serious about trying to have normal relations, at least you talk to your counterpart. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, you know, earlier uh, um, uh, this summer, uh, President Xi Jinping had a, uh, a, a meeting with Henry Kissinger, who yeah. 100 years old, uh, and he called him uh, old friend and so forth. And the White House, uh, very uh, naively, I thought, said, well, this is rude. Uh, Henry Kissinger gets a meeting, but we don't get a meeting. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, if you want a meeting, be polite. Henry Kissinger is not rude uh, to President mm -hmm. Xi Jinping. He's not rude to China. Uh, he is very respectful. 
and if uh, the U.S. government was very respectful, we'd have a lot more meetings. Mm. So uh, this is uh, part of the American approach. It's uh, very uh, much pitched to the public. It's mm. very lowbrow. Uh, most of our congressmen are not very sophisticated. Many of them don't travel abroad. I'm sure many have never even been to China, uh, even if they're very anti-Chinese, because it's based more on uh, assertion and on stereotypes uh, and on uh, narrative than it is on truth. But this is how American politics is. So the intricate rivalry between the United States and China in the realm of technology and international relations carries far-reaching consequences. Whether driven by national security concerns or, as suggested by Professor Sachs, reflecting a potentially negative approach to global relations, this competition will undoubtedly impact the world's political and technological landscape. As these two global powers continue to shape the future, the dynamic of the relationship will remain a pivotal force in international affairs and technological progress. And with that, I want to talk, I want to move into our next topic, which is shifting global dynamics, particularly China's rise. And the first question I have is regarding the G7. So the, GSF, the G7's influence on global economic governments has declined, with the G20 emerging as a more inclusive form. Now, how do you see the role of the G7, G20, and other international forms involve, evolving in our current multipolar world, with China rising as a, as a much greater power? And what, what reforms or changes do you think are needed in these situations to address the current global economic challenges more effectively? It seems that the most significant thing that's happened uh, recently is that the BRICS are aiming to be a, a real a group that has uh, functions, uh, common policies, common strategies, especially around monetary and financial policy, by the way. Now, the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, uh, are five countries that now have about 32% of the world's output within them. Uh, that's a lot uh, because the G7, which is the United States, Canada, Britain, France, Italy, Germany, and Japan, have only 30%. Mm -hmm. So the BRICS uh, within uh, the last few years became a larger group than the G7 countries. That by itself was already significant. The BRICS this year announced that they would expand the grouping. This is quite interesting, uh, and the expansion itself is quite interesting. One country that will join is Brazil's next-door neighbor, Argentina. Uh, two more will join in East Africa, Egypt, and Ethiopia. And those are each countries with uh, ancient civilizations. That's one part. Uh, more than 100 million people each, and uh, strategic positions along the Red Sea and, of course, the Suez Canal in the case of uh, Egypt. So uh, some people say, well, this is also to guard against uh, the U.S. <coughs> or the West trying to use choke points of mm -hmm. uh, international uh, ocean uh, trade as a, as a threat mechanism. Then the other uh, three countries are uh, Middle East, West Asia, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, United Arab Emirates, and Iran. Uh, now, even Iran and Saudi Arabia being in the same room together would have been rather shocking. 
two mm -hmm. years ago because this was supposedly the great clash of uh, two uh, civilizations within the Islamic world, the Sunni and the Shia, uh, uh, different uh, groups. But uh, China brought them together uh, mm -hmm. and uh, they made uh, diplomatic peace and now they're both going to be members of the BRICS. So this is a big deal. Uh, when these six new countries are incorporated, mm -hmm. the BRICS will go from being about 32% of world output to being roughly 37% of world output. Uh, and they will constitute, if I remember correctly, something around 45% of world population. It's a major grouping. The main practical uh, area of work of the BRICS seems like it's going to be the payment system to create mm -hmm. ways to have international trade not using the dollar. And the idea is that the U.S. really weaponize the dollar uh, so that uh, if you're holding dollar reserves and you're an enemy of the United States, the U.S. might just take them like it did with Russia mm -hmm. or Afghanistan or uh, Iran or Venezuela. Very bad habit. You should not take other people's things mm. uh, in this arbitrary way, um, especially their foreign exchange reserves. So now the BRICS are trying to work around that. And uh, we'll see if they come up with something, but I think there's a good chance that they will. Then comes the G20. The G20 aimed, and I made uh, recommendations to form a group like this uh, in the late 1990s, uh, a roundtable that included developed and developing countries. Very useful, very handy. What will happen? Uh, will the G20 still function uh, in a world where there's a BRICS camp and a, a G7 camp, or will uh, the G20 be crowded out by this, uh, uh, these two groups competing with each other? I hope the G20 functions and mm -hmm. continues to function. In fact, I hope that, as may happen in the summit in India later this week, that uh, the African Union will be invited to become the 21st member of the group because the European Union is a member as a union, so the African Union should be a member. And I've been making that argument for a number of years, and I hope it will happen uh, this time. Next year's G20, after India this year and Indonesia last year, will be hosted by Brazil. And then year, the year after that by South Africa. So it will be three BRICS countries uh, in a row, uh, India, Brazil, and South Africa. Let's see what comes out of this, uh, whether uh, this uh, process of bringing the uh, high income and the typically middle income countries together uh, leads mm -hmm. to a fairer world or it leads to a breakdown, we don't know yet. One of the problems with the G20 this year is that the U.S. just wanted to use it as a way to condemn Russia. Now, this is just posturing because Russia's part of the G20, China's mm -hmm. part of the G20. Uh, there are many other countries that don't want to uh, attack Russia in this context and that see a more nuanced understanding of the war. And the U.S. has really been pushing hard. Oh, you have to, uh, you have to criticize uh, the Russian uh, invasion in every document, in every 
communique and much of the rest of the world is saying, no, leave us alone. This is about finance. This is about other things, climate. We need to cooperate. So how this is going to play out, we'll see during the next few days. I think that's a very good point because the Ukraine-Russian conflict really brought out a sort of a turning point point in international relations. The U.S. assumed that all these countries would follow the U.S. and you know certain other, certain other European nations in condemning Russia and stopping trade, but that's in fact not what happened. You know, many nations still trade with Russia, and they see that as a European security issue, not as a global, you know, global issue that that affects them. It may be that this proves to be a important moment mm -hmm. in creating a more multipolar world. It's a little too early to judge, but it could certainly be that way. Uh, I sometimes make a comparison, uh, maybe a little strange, but to a battle uh, that took place uh, around 9 AD uh, mm. to 15 AD uh, called the Battle of uh, the Teutoburg Forest. And the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest was uh, uh, a battle in which the Roman Empire wanted to move eastward across the Rhine. And the Rhine was the traditional divide between the Germanic lands to the northeast of Europe and the Roman Empire in the south and west of Europe. And uh, the Roman Empire had aspirations of continuing to spread and take over uh, all of Europe, basically, and much else. but. Um, the Roman uh, uh, legions were defeated uh, in the Battle of uh, Teutoburg Forest by Germanic tribes that coalesced and, and actually defeated the greatest empire of the age. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be rather decisive because uh, the Roman Empire uh, never really crossed the Rhine again other than in uh, very uh, momentary uh, occasions. Uh, the Rhine really became the dividing line. Didn't end the Roman Empire by any means, which went on for uh, another uh, uh, almost 500 years in the West. Mm -hmm. um, but it did cause a limit. And I'm wondering whether Ukraine will finally help the United States to see stop the hegemony and expansion, uh, mm -hmm. just accept some limits. Ukraine was a limit. It should have been a limit. You should have understood all along not to uh, uh, stick your nose uh, into more than your nose, your military, uh, your military bases, your weapon systems uh, into uh, Russia's neighborhood. Uh, that would have been prudent. That would have mm -hmm. been wise. Maybe. Uh, there will be the same kind of lesson <laughs> for the U.S. Uh, as the Romans uh, learned in Teutoburg uh, 2,000 years ago that mm. uh, there are practical limits. It's not the end of the world to accept limits, uh, but you should accept them. Uh, the same is true in East Asia. Uh, the United mm. States should stop poking around uh, in China's policies inside China. This is period, uh, especially provoking potential disaster with Taiwan. There is a one-China policy. Uh, I really uh, admire Taiwan, but, and I don't want a war there. 
Uh, I want peace there across the straits, and I think the United States is actually the biggest provocation that could undermine peace, not uh, the mainland, uh, but just the U.S. pushing in weapon systems. This is very much like what happened with uh, Ukraine, and I don't want to see it happen uh, in uh, East Asia. I see. I think the situation in Taiwan definitely is, um, there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn to Ukraine. And I think no one wants to see a very big conflict there. No one wants to see a conflict there, let's say. Yes, I definitely <laughs> agree with that. Um, and I think with that, that's all the time we have. Um, thank you very much for your insights on you know, the geopolitical tensions, the monetary policy, and how to curb inflation. I think that was all very fantastic. Thank, thank you, you, thank you uh, for, for having me in the podcast and for this chance to, uh, to explore these uh, issues. I'll just end by saying the most important thing we need in this world is peace. Because if there's peace, we can solve all the rest of the problems. Mm -hmm. If there's war, uh, we're just in a, uh, in a direction of, uh, of destruction. And uh, destruction will not solve anything. I think that's a fantastic point to end on. And I think we couldn't agree more, all of us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And thank you very much for hosting us in your lovely home. Oh, it's very, welcome. very, very kind. As we come to the end of this episode, we've touched upon some of the most defining economic and geopolitical themes of our era. From the undeniable impact of inflation to the heightening tensions between key global players like Ukraine and Russia, as well as China and the US. These events, coupled with the shifting global dynamics and the ascendance of China, are reshaping the very fabric of international relations and economic strategies. That concludes our conversation for today. I want to thank Professor Sachs for shedding light on these intricate economic challenges through his nuanced analysis and policy insights. The stakes have truly never been higher as we seek to balance economic vitality and contain vulnerabilities globally. But with the spirit of cooperation and openness to new solutions, I believe we can work towards financial stability, environmental sustainability, and more equitable growth. <laughs>